So happy Mother's Day, moms. I know this isn't what you had in mind. This isn't what you were expecting. This is very different for you this year. Um, but nonetheless, I'd love to thank you for all the work you put in to this. Um, I think if there's any year we would want to honor our moms, it is in the year 2020. Because as we have been finding out, COVID-19 parenting is no joke. <laughs> You've had to wear many different hats um, over the last couple months. Camp counselor, activity director, principal, all these things, educator, these things that you might not be used to or a lot more of what you've already been doing. It's been difficult, but I'm thankful for how nimble you've been. Um, I'm, I'm thankful for all the stories I'm hearing about how moms and dads are bonding with their kids on a deeper level. Typically on Mother's Day, we give away expensive chocolates um, to our moms every year. We're obviously not able to do that this year, so in your honor, I'm going to eat my weight in chocolate. <laughs> Today, as I pray for all of you, not really, it'd be crazy. I did that yesterday. I wouldn't do it two days in a row. Um, hey, listen, I'm thankful for Taylor's testimony that you just saw. Um, I'm not just thankful that Taylor went overseas and did some great work. I am thankful for that, just the sacrifice and her kind of marching into a real difficult situation. Italy was not in great shape when she went over there, but I'm also thankful for the testimony of what God is doing in the midst of disruption. I mean, I don't know if you caught this in her story, but as they're preaching the gospel and translators are moving their language into the Italian tongue, the, the translators themselves are becoming Christians. Friends, that is crazy. That is straight out of the book of Acts. That is an amazing thing. But what I want you to grab also out of that story is not just that God is doing amazing disruptive things in Italy like that, but that 4,700 miles away here in Knoxville, Tennessee, it's the same God doing the same things. The same gospel that is reaching people in Italy is reaching people in Knoxville. The same gospel that is sustaining those who are suffering or depressed or lonely is sustaining people here. The same Holy Spirit um, is moving in hearts here that is moving in hearts there. So just want you to pray with expectancy here in Knoxville. Don't listen to stories like Italy and think, wow, God is doing great things over there. I wished God was doing great things here. You need to know he is doing great things here. So pray that God gives you eyes to see and a, and a heavy hunger to see God do some of the very same things around you. Because we're living in a very crazy time. And God, like we just said, he specializes in disruptions. I mean, let's face it, the last two months have felt like two years, hasn't it, with all that's happened. Um, but as much as has happened, it feels like things are kind of scaling down and getting simpler all at the same time. We're, we're starting to feel and live a life of subtraction. Um, my gas tank is lasting a lot longer than it used to. I don't have as much Starbucks as I was used to having. I mean, I'm noticing that as complicated as society is getting and as much new data and news is being pumped out by the second, our rhythms are getting very simple because things are being taken away from our life, right? Almost to the point where a lot of us are saying, you know, when we go back to normal, I'm not bringing some of these other things back. I mean, I've even heard some people say, I don't want to go back to the same job now that I've had time to breathe and look at my life. And then there are things that we can't wait to bring back to our lives. There are these moments that we, we experience and we think, man, this is the life. This is living. And we can't wait to get those back. 
being with our friends, getting outside, going to the park, all kinds of things that we would put in that big bucket, right? I think Paul has a lot to speak to us um, in that regard today. As we've been working through the book of Philippians, um, which is his letter to a young church, where the mega theme is, is that we can have joy in all circumstances for our good and for his glory. That joy is always accessible, that we could live a content life here in all ways. I find that he is able to speak to us in a way that we can really hear with bigger ears today. And he's a credible source when it comes to talking about this life that we live and how we value our life and the things we put in our life because we're actually listening to a man who's living a life of subtraction himself. He wrote this while in quarantine, while in prison. He wrote this whenever he was distant from those that he loved. He wrote this when a lot of his freedoms had been scaled back. So as we look at the Bible today, I want you to know that Paul is not just speaking to this church in Philippi. God is speaking to you and me through the letters of Paul. So this is going to be a helpful passage for us today. Um, it's going to help us see Christ more clearly, and therefore it's going to help us see ourselves more clearly. So if you have a Bible, I want you to flip over in your own Bible to Philippians 1. If you don't have one, you can always pause this, go get your Bible, come back, open it up, and look at or we'll just put it on the screen. How about that? All right, Philippians 1. We're going to start in verse 18, which is actually where we left off last week. Paul says, and this is the word of the Lord for us today, What then? Now when he says what then, sorry to interrupt, when he says what then, he's commenting on the, the, the train of thought he's leaving, which is there are a bunch of men who are preaching the gospel to people, but they're doing it in such a way that it's hurting Paul, right? So Paul's basically saying, what do I care about that? So he says, what then? Only that in every way, whether in pretense or in truth, Christ is proclaimed, and in that I rejoice. Yes, and I will rejoice, for I know that through your prayers and the help of the Spirit of Jesus Christ, this will turn out for my deliverance, as it is my eager expectation and hope that I will not be at all ashamed, but that with full courage, now as always, Christ will be honored in my body whether by life or by death. For to me, to live is Christ, and to die is gain. If I am to live in the flesh, that means fruitful labor for me. Yet, which I shall choose, I cannot tell. I am hard-pressed between the two. My desire is to depart and be with Christ, for that is far better. But to remain in the flesh is more necessary on your account. Convinced of this, I know that I will remain and continue with you all for your progress and joy in the faith, so that in me you may have ample cause to glory in Christ Jesus because of my coming to you again. Okay, Paul's reflecting out loud, right? He's pondering. He's just kind of speaking his heart in a way that you and I can see it. And what we're meant to see is he's being stretched between two desires. One desire is to remain with the church, particularly this one church of Philippi, by walking alongside them and teaching them and equipping them, building more and more. But the other desire is to depart, just to pack up camp and go and be with Jesus. Right? And he's being stretched because they're both really good desires. This passage is hard for us because we semi-understand it. We logically understand what Paul is saying with this unique little slogan. We understand that, 
but it does run against the grain of how we see life and death and desire. When he says to live as Christ and to die as gain, we'll print that up on a shirt or a coffee mug. It's even easy to remember, but we semi-understand it, I think. I mean, we typically read that as Paul doesn't care about death, right? That's typically the, the cursory reading will give us is Paul doesn't care if he dies. I mean, he's such a boss. He has zero cares. He spits in the face of death, right? He doesn't care. He's so tough, he doesn't even need life, right? That's how we read it. Like he has some bravado. His chest is all puffed out. Like he's a superhero. Like he's out of a Marvel comic book. He's bulletproof, right? We admire this, how carefree he is in the face of death itself. But you need to know, Paul is not rejecting life as much as he is choosing Christ, right? He's not rejecting this life for the sake of rejecting life and being tough. He's choosing Jesus, and that's important. You see, Paul prizes Christ above absolutely everything, even his next breath, even his next breath. And he's stretching for God in this passage. You can see it. You can see him straining and stretching because he wants God to be honored in his body, whether he's living or dying or really anything in between. His whole goal is that Christ be honored in his own body. And we see this from time to time. We see this in John the Baptist, right? If you were to kind of rewind in the story of the New Testament, you'll see John the Baptist say things like, man, I'm happy to decrease so that Christ increases. And that's effectively what Paul is doing here. Whether life or death, that God would be honored in my body. That is his goal, right? Friends, listen, this is the essence of worship. Worship. Right? I think this is important to talk about now because our worship rhythms have been disrupted. So let's just get this out in the open. The essence of worship is living in any moment in such a way that God is honored in our body. That he's honored in who we are, in what we do. It's not just singing. We don't just worship just by singing. It's not just the part of a church service where there's a musician or two or ten up on stage and they lead us through songs. It's also working. We worship as we play. We worship as we create art, as we fix the plumbing. We worship as we read. We, we worship in everything that we do. Now, Paul is so big on this theme that he actually repeats it, sometimes even using the same words and the same ideas, but to different churches in different cities. And it's important for us to see this. And so in 1 Corinthians, and this would be a year earlier, so a year before he wrote this letter to the Philippian church, he wrote one to the Corinthian church, 1 Corinthians 6, Paul says this, Or do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit within you whom, you, whom you have from God? You are not your own, for you were bought with a price. So glorify God in your body. Same words, same idea. You're not your own. You're not your own. Nothing you have belongs to you. This is important to know. God owns everything. And you don't own anything. We're stewards. We're managers of what God has given us. And this is everything, not just our time and our talent and our treasure. We talk in those phrases all the time because those are very big primary things that we manage into God's glory, right? But also your thoughts. Do you know you don't own those? Your ambitions, your dreams, your hopes, your next breath, you don't own it. You manage them. You manage them either for God's glory or for your own glory, but you manage them. We're stewards, right? 
At no point in time are we independent of God's ownership. At no point in time do we stand apart from him and say, that is yours and this is mine. Our very breath is measured. Our heartbeats are measured, right? By the one who what? Who owns them. And we manage them for his glory. Or we manage them for our own glory. But nothing is just for us, right? You see, when we spend our ambitions and our time and our thoughts and our words to the glory of God, we're, we're in that moment, whatever that moment might be, somewhere between life and death, we will find ourselves worshiping God. Now, we can always missteward our lives, mismanage everything that God owns, and we actually don't stop worshiping in that moment. We just have moved the object of worship to be ourselves instead of Christ. So now we manage everything he owns for our glory instead of his. And that's closer to theft than it is anything. But worshiping God, or in Paul's words today, honoring God in our body, it begins where our selfish demands end. It Worship is that place where we say, not me, but you. Where we say, I decrease, you increase. Where we have a self-forgetfulness and our fascination is drawn towards him. That's where worship begins and you can do that anywhere. He says very similarly to another church in Romans. He says in Romans 12.1, I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. Okay, so we see Paul setting the stage for all these young churches, right, of what worship looks like and how God's glory is displayed most when we enjoy him. And I think that's important for us to see. Not that worship is when we honor him in our body, but also that that is the place where we find the deepest joy and that we can have both at the same time. Now, this is a concept that we've looked at the last two weeks, the fact that our deepest joy will be found where God's deepest glory is manifest in our lives. And we can hold both at the same time. We don't typically think in that way. We think that in order to hold one, we've got to put the other down for a few minutes, right? So, like, if God's glory is held highest, that means we've got to be pretty miserable, right? I mean, that, that has to entail some sort of suffering or sacrifice. I mean, if God is glorified in our life, that means that I'm, I'm feeling pretty rotten in that moment. Something was taken away from me. It must hurt. And that, friends, listen, that's just a weird way of looking at God. That's not even theologically accurate. We won't find that in the Bible anywhere. I mean, sure, a living sacrifice means that you're living a life where you're going to feel subtraction. That's what sacrifice is. That's why it's called sacrifice. But did you know that even in sacrifice, you can have a robust joy about you? You can feel joy even in the midst of sacrifice. We see this in Christ where it says, even for the joy set before him, placed before him, he marches towards sacrifice for your benefit. And that the Father, with the joy in him, is very quick to sacrifice his beloved Son for you and me, for our benefit. It's possible. It's possible to give deeply, to be sacrificial in every moment, and be the most joyful person. It's possible. I think we wrongly think to experience joy we must be doing something spiritual or churchy, right? But friends, listen, for God, there is no division between the secular and the sacred. Why? Because as we've seen, everything belongs to him. <laughs> whether you're preaching a sermon or gardening, whether you're journaling to the Lord with a the, with the magical pen in his beautiful journal, or you're changing the oil in your car, 
everything. There is no division between the secular and the sacred. Every breath, we have an opportunity to worship and find joy in the Lord. You know, this slogan that has rallied millions of people, the one that we use often in our church, that God is most glorified in you when you are most satisfied in him. It's an it's a easy slogan. It's a lot like Paul's slogan here, right? Because it's easy to remember. The words seem to fit together, and it makes sense. It's easier for us to take a, a pretty big theological concept and compress it in a way that works with us. It's portable. God is most glorified in you when you are most joyful and satisfied and content in him. That's something that John Piper um, brought to this current age, and it's been very helpful for a lot of people. Now, what John Piper will tell you is that he got it from this passage in Philippians 1. This is where he extracted the truth of Paul's slogan to build his slogan. This happens to be John Piper's life passage, and it's very helpful for me. I, I love reading it and thinking in these terms, because sometimes for me, maybe like you, I think for God to be most glorified means that it's going to be difficult to be joyful, that maybe joy can't be found. I think we could be clumsy with this passage if we treat it as if Paul has a flippant view of death. And that's not the main idea here. He's being stretched between two desires, right? And this is how he lands. Death would be best for me. Life would be best for you. Death would be best for me, but life would be best for you. And that's how he lands the plane. Here's my big question for Paul and my big question for you. Why is death gain, right? Why? And Paul doesn't just say it's better. He says it's far better. Why? Better than what? Well, anything that this world has to offer, right? All the beautiful and noble things that this world offers us. Uh, the best, the best of the best moments. A newborn baby, a freshly minted marriage, um, the deepest belly laugh, your favorite foods, with your favorite people and your favorite places and your favorite seasons. Your, your favorite moments, the moments where you lean back and you say, this is the life, I'm living the life. Friends, listen, I've had some great moments in my 44 years with my wife and my friends and my family. I've had moments that I've just never wanted to end. You have too. Full of memories, full of laughter, full of bonding. It sounds like death would be losing all of that. The, the subtraction and the taking away of all of those precious things. And friends, that's kind of the truth. You lose everything when you die. But you gain something. You lose everything, that this, the best that this world has to offer, when you die. You lose everything except what you gain by dying, though. We gain Jesus. This is what Paul is aiming at. Right? Paul also says, though, to stick around. It's necessary for you guys. He's not being prideful in this moment. He wants to do life with them, and he knows that they want to do life with him. And he knows there's a tremendous amount of work to do. I mean, it's difficult work to build churches that will build churches that will build churches. And that's what this man wants to do. And he knows his work isn't finished. There's more to build. There's more to teach. But if it were up to him, his personal preferences, he'd prefer just to pack up his camp and move on. Because this campsite that he's on called Earth, it's just a temporary place for him. He wants to go home. He wants to behold Christ himself eye to eye with his hero. His grip in this place in his life is so tight on Jesus that he has run out of grip for this world. 
Now, when I read passages like this, particularly this passage, I'm indicted a little bit. I feel tempted to feel shame. Maybe you do too when you read passage like this. This this uh, storm comes over your head like, I ought to be like Paul. I ought to be better. And I feel the same thing, that my grip is so loose on Christ but so tight on this world. I read passages like this, and I wished I loved God more. And I wished I loved this world less. Maybe you're in the same boat. I read this, and I'm tempted to think that to live is so many things, and to die is to lose so many things around us. To live is reputation. To die is anonymity. To live is comfort. To die is, well, it's discomfort. To live is safety. To to die is chaos. To live is identity. To die is to disappear. I mean, we could go on and on and on. And we get this this sense of valuing this world and not valuing the next because we picked it up from our first parents in the garden. It's the same thing. Adam says to live is to get some fruit from that tree over there. I know, I know, it's the one that God told us that is not for us, but to live is to be a God unto myself. For me to be able to discern the difference between good and evil. For me not to be held back. For me not to depend. To die is to depend on this God. It's to be sub-God. And ever since that moment, we have all struggled with the very same thing. But friends, here's the truth. As indicted as I might be at the beginning, I have great hope when I read a passage like this. Incredible hope. Because Paul wasn't even always like this. Something changed Paul, right? If you go back in your Bible and you look at his story arc in the book of Acts and maybe some of his early writing, you'll see that Saul, before he was Paul, he lived like this world with a tight grip on this world. He built like this world with the ambitions and the dreams of this world because he wanted to be great and big in this world. In fact, later in this very same letter, we're going to see him list off a resume that would impress most people. It's the kind of resume you would want said about you before you went up on some stage and picked up an award, before you uh, spoke at a TED Talk, something that you would want on your resume yourself. It is impressive, and he doesn't do it to brag. He's actually doing it to shame his former life. We'll get to it in a couple chapters. But I'll say now, he had all that this world could give him. He had the right birthright, the right family, the right religion, the right reputation, the right personality, the right opportunities. He had everything. He was a steeply climbing rocket. No one could slow this guy down. He was caught up in the rat race as much as anyone was. He wanted to be great in this world. To live was not Christ to Paul. His trophy case was totally different back then. To live for Paul was to be great, to have a reputation, to be right, to be dignified, to be glorious. That was life. Death for him was to be powerless and unknown in second place or last place. You see, to live and to die had different values for Paul when he was Saul. It's important for you to know, especially if you're not familiar with the Bible, and the the person of Saul slash Paul is maybe somewhat new to you, is you'll find him earlier in his life story, you'll find him stealing people out of their homes. Um, man, woman, and child, carting them off to prisons. He would supervise torture and death, and he'd do it with a grin on his face. That's this guy. I want you to consider that the very first martyr for the church in Stephen was overseen by this same guy, by Saul. 
he, he would say, hey, I want to help out with this stoning. Because, guys, listen, you can't get a proper wind-up with a rock. I mean, if you're going to aim for Stephen's head and you're going to kill this guy, you need some follow-through. So find you a good rock, get you that robe off, take that coat off, and just put him right here. I'll watch your stuff for you so you can really get into this stoning. If you really want to stone this guy properly, I'm here to help. Put all your stuff here. And as this martyr cries out to God, as he glorifies God in his body, even in his death, Paul watches on approvingly, probably dreaming of how many more of those he was going to get to do. Same guy. For him, his motto was to live, was not Christ, but was to break the church. To die was not gain, it was to fail at breaking the church. I mean, listen, we know of his salvation story. He goes to Damascus on the road to Damascus. The Lord just punts him off his horse and has a little talk with him, and he's blinded. We've seen the story. He was not sent to Damascus. He begged to go to Damascus. He had kill orders that were burning a hole in his pocket. He begged the officials to send him with orders to go and do more of what he just approvingly watched on Stephen, and that is to martyr more Christians, to extinguish the gospel of God in the church. That's what he wanted to do. This is how God found him. God found Saul in his darkest moment, in the bleakest his soul had ever been, in the most ruthless place. God invades and disrupts everything and builds a church planter. Builds a church planter where his trophy case changes. And now to live is Christ and to die is gain. We see a different man. He's let go of this world in the rat race and he is held tightly to Christ himself. He says later on in the same letter, Philippians 3 verse 8, Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. For his sake I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ. Listen, I know I'm not alone whenever I say that it's easy to read this passage as a spectator only, like an onlooker. Like we're watching someone wind up and throw a fastball, or we're watching a, a, a 6'5", 300-pound linebacker. We, we, we watch them and we admire them, but we know we can never really be them. That's how we read passages like this. I mean, we see this example of the gospel in Paul, but we think in our minds, yeah, but it's, it's also just Paul, right? We can never be Paul. I find myself doing that. I want to love Jesus this much. But always? Always this much? I find not always, right? I want his glory to be enlarged in my life. Except for those moments where I want my own glory to be enlarged in this life. I want to reject all that this world has to offer. Okay, most of what this world has to offer, right? Isn't that how we... we kind of intercept passages like this and, and try to handle them. I want to prefer trials and tribulations for your sake, Legacy, Knoxville, for your sake, but only until it hurts really bad. See, we, we're tempted to read this as a spectator. Why? Because our grip is really tight here. It's really tight. And for me to live, it's Jesus plus a big bucket of things. And to die is to lose this big bucket of things. That's why I'm so thankful for this story. You know, when I read stories like this, and when I read passages like this, the ones that indict a little bit, 
I always ask the question, where does a passage like this find me most fallen? By the way, if you're new to reading the Bible, it's always helpful to read through a lens of, where does this passage show me God most clearly? Where does this passage show me Christ the most clearly? The gospel the most clearly? And where does it reveal the worst in myself, where I am most fallen and I am most flawed? And for me, in this, I see that I want what is best for me that is not Christ alone. I want what is best for me that is not Christ alone. Paul is yearning for all of Jesus and only Jesus. Sometimes we can yearn for Jesus plus a few things. They're important things, of course, right? But plus some things. Friends, listen, if Jesus is not increasingly our all in all, above all things, then death is not gain at all. It's not. I mean, death is just this frightening and shallow prospect. And if that's the case, then the shiny things on the landscape of this place is always going to entice us and fascinate us more than God's glory. Heaven is not something that we're walking towards. Heaven is something that we're trying to build here. Right? If my joy is anchored in this world full of all of its false promises, then Jesus isn't really all that much at all. And so dying just means losing a lot of stuff now. I mean, by the way, this is why a lot of people are so unattracted to the idea of heaven. It's because Christ is found there. <laughs> Jesus is the best part of our eternity. And we're busy trying to build a heaven here with all of our shiny things. So I think the best questions to ask ourselves at this point are, are going to be the hardest ones. Okay? At what point do we reverse Paul's slogan? At what point do we say to live is a shiny thing, something, even a good thing? even a gift from God. To live is to have that, and to die is to lose it. To live as kids. To die is to lose our kids. To live is our spouse. To die is to lose our spouse. To live as friends, reputation, comfort. What we ultimately crave in this world will be met most fully in the next but it will be met in Christ. He will be the one that meets our deepest needs. Every good experience that you have here, every great moment that you feel here will be most fully met in Jesus. What you experience here is just an echo of what will be fully met. It's a shadow of what will be fully met. Jesus, when we see him eye to eye and we see his glory reflected and we experience him as we are headed to experience him, as we were meant to experience him, we will actually experience joy at the deepest level. The best that the world has to give us. The sunsets that we look at and we think, man, nothing could, <laughs> I could take a million pictures, I couldn't capture this. Or a child's laughter, the infectiousness of a kid laughing. Every romantic moment that you've had, that you've really thought this is the greatest feeling in the world. Every big win that you've had, all our best and favorite moments are just a husk, a casing of the substance that we will find in Christ alone. I think what we do is we, we look at the joys of this world and we think that they are somehow going to compete with the joys in the next. Right? Like we'll see Jesus face to face and we will see his glory and we will be in renewed bodies, but we're going to miss Taco Tuesday or something like that, or we're gonna long for the days of Netflix, or we're gonna be sad that we don't get to do something, fill in the blank, anymore. 
Friends, it's not going to be like that. There is no competing with the glory and the joy that we will experience when we look face to face with our hero, our rescuer, our savior, our king, our general. There will be no competition. Consider this, even in a renewed creation, where you have bodies that don't decay or get tired or die anymore, where you're swimming in perfect oceans and you're running up mountains that are perfect and you're not getting tired, even in a perfect creation, still the apex of the joy that you will feel will be in Christ himself. He is the epitome of joy. And so Saul becoming Paul, it was done by the gospel. And here we look at Paul speaking to us in a way that he's obviously changed from the guy that he was. And that's because of the gospel story. And the gospel story for you and me, as we see it clearly in this passage, is a story where death itself has been remodeled, remolded even, to where death is now gain. Where it was total loss, now it's total gain. And so God's people can long to see Jesus and, and, and be okay with something like death. Not to escape all the problems of this world. That's not why the next world is so beautiful. It's because Christ is in the middle of the next world. To die is gain can only be true when the gospel, the story of God for mankind, through the person of Jesus, has removed the sting of death. Right? That's the only way it can be gain. Jesus experiences death for us to make our death gain. Because of Jesus' death on the cross, we have life. It's beautiful. Paul also says this to the same Corinthian church, but he says it in another letter. He says in verse five, or chapter 5, verse 14, For the love of Christ controls us, because we've concluded this, that one has died for all, therefore all have died, and he died for all, that those who live might no longer live for themselves, but for him, for, for their sake, died and was raised. Listen, I can't wait for eternity the place of no more tears. I can't wait for no more shame, no more depression. I can't wait for a place of no more suicide or isolation or addictions. I can't wait for this place. But you know what the best thing is about this place where we're headed? Is that Jesus is there. <laughs> he's, he's there. And we get to have him in increasing measures for all eternity, where every moment in eternity is better than the moment before. We get to, ex we get to experience his exceeding worth increasingly as eternity rolls forward. We see this in Revelation 21, just the centerpiece of who Jesus is in the next world. It says the city, which is the city that we will live in, has no need of sun or moon to shine on it. For the glory of God gives it light, and its lamp is the Lamb. See, Paul knew this, right? So when it came between this, when it came to this decision where he had options, one is he can live as Christ and become more like Christ and walk alongside the church and build and grow and plant and move as he can do that. That would be one thing. But the other option being a sword across his neck where he would be killed, he would still choose death. He would still choose that because he wanted more of Christ. Friends, here's the big question. Are you satisfied with your love that you have for Jesus right now? Are you satisfied? Or do you want it to increase? Right? If you aren't content with the level of love and desire you have for Jesus, you need to know that already 
already the Holy Spirit is moving in your heart. That's not something that you would even be able to spot unless the Holy Spirit was doing a work in you. Nobody says, nobody says, you know what? I really want to love Jesus more. I, I want my heart to expand for him so I could worship him in every moment between life and death. Nobody says that unless the Holy Spirit is moving things around and making space and showing you Christ more clearly. That is the work of the Holy Spirit. So I'm saying that to you so that you can rejoice. That God is so sweet to you that he would even give you the itch to maybe pursue God in an increasing measure. That he doesn't just abandon you to just sink into a depression. We don't naturally get to this place of saying, to live is Christ and to die is gain. Whether life or death, all I care about is that God is honored in my body. I'm fine decreasing while he increases. People don't say that naturally. We don't get to that place naturally. It's supernaturally that we get to this place. So be thankful because it's God's kindness that leads you and me to change, to repent. But did you know that you're, you are free to just ask God to give you a bigger heart for him? You're, you're free. He's inviting you to do that, even today, to pray. God, bring me joy and satisfaction like Paul had, that I would be content in all things, whether I'm abounding in things, whether things have been taken away, whether I'm free to roam or I'm locked down in place, that I would have a content joy in you. Father, fascinate me with your love, your love for me that my love for you would grow. Lord, my heart is prone to wander. Bring me back, Father. Make me fascinated and intoxicated with your grace and your mercy towards me. Father, because I don't love you like I want to love you, but I, I want to love you more. So help me love you more. You know, he will do this. He will answer prayers like that. You could pray with expectation. Friends, listen, we have to be serious about this dedicated to this work. This kind of increasing love, it doesn't happen accidentally. This doesn't happen passively. It's like the, the two parables that are back to back in the Gospels, in Matthew. One is of a man who found a treasure in a field, right? So he goes and sells everything he has and buys that field so he can go and dig up that treasure. It's pretty smart when you think about it. And then you've got right after that the pearl merchant who found one pearl that apparently is the pearl of all pearls. I wouldn't know what that looks like. But he goes and sells all of his other impressive pearls to buy the one most awesomest pearl. Both those parables are to show you and me that these guys, they sold everything to get one thing, one thing of surpassing worth in Paul's language, of exceeding value, one thing. Paul found this treasure in Jesus, and he sold the whole world to get it. Now, later on in Paul's story, he would leave this cell. As far as we know, he would get to visit this church again, Philippi. We also know that he gets pinched again. He goes back to jail. They arrest him a year or two later, and they execute him. Paul went to the grave, brutalized, dismembered. And I think he knows that. And I think he's rejoicing at even that thought because he knew that God will be honored in his life and in his death, whether in life or in death. And not even the sword itself can remove this joy from Paul, not even the sword. You know, this is important for us, like I said earlier, because we don't have a service, a corporate service where we're all getting together. Um, our rhythms are different. Worship 
is something that we're not doing through song as much as we used to. But I want you to see in this moment that worship is something that we can do in our bodies, whether life or death, and everything in between. So when you work today, and you play today, and you rest today, and you watch TV today, and you do whatever you want today, that you can do so to the glory of God. Whether in life or in death, He can be honored in your body. And I want you to know that there is much to gain when we pursue Jesus above all other things. And friends, there's going to be a day where we're home, where we see Paul even. You know, C.S. Lewis, he wrote this compendium, this multi-volume set, the, the Chronicles of Narnia. I think there's seven books in there. The last one is called The Last Battle. And in the last sentence of the last paragraph of the last book of this gigantic series, we see this moment where Aslan, the lion, or the Christ figure, is speaking to the children. And he says this, This term, meaning this world, is over. The holidays have begun. The dream has ended. This is the morning. And he's speaking of eternity. He's speaking of a life that is after this life. A place where we behold Christ face to face. We see his glory and we experience joy without the stain of sin and the spoil of death for the first time. And we will experience forever upon ever upon ever. Listen, I'm praying for you and your families. As a, as a leadership team, we're praying for you by name. We love you a bunch and we miss you. Friends, you need to know if you need anything. If you need pastoral guidance, you need friendship, you need to cry with somebody, you need someone to pray with you, you need connection, you need a bill paid, you need something. Listen, you need to contact us. Go on our website. There's a portal there where you can, you can get your questions answered and we can route you to the best way where we can help you. But also, listen, if you are not a Christian and you would love to talk to somebody about Jesus and maybe have somebody pray with you, there's also a little place on our front page of our website, LegacyKnoxville.com, where you can go and click on that and give us an, an opportunity to contact you where we can talk with you about Christ, tell you the gospel story, and pray with you. So we love you. Hope you have a great Mother's Day, all right? God bless. Have a great week. We'll talk to you soon.